Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> Luke 8, we'll look at verses 22 to 25 today. I don't know about you, but I like things orderly and peaceful, everything predictable and under control, no surprises. In fact, beyond just liking that, I tend to believe that if I'm walking with the Lord, if I'm doing the things I should be doing, it will be nice and orderly, no major trouble, no unexpected crises. But when I look back on my life and the lives of people that I know well enough to know, that's not how life plays out. In fact, Sometimes the times of greatest faithfulness have often been the times of greatest trouble. And the times of greatest trouble have also surprisingly been the times of greatest growth. So as we come to our text this morning, I'm both disheartened and encouraged. Disheartened that my hope of predictable peacefulness is just a dream but encouraged that God's word supports what I've learned to be true in life. So let's read it. An account of how the lives of 12 faithful disciples were suddenly turned upside down by an unexpected crisis. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. The squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where's your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This morning, let me just boil this down to two simple truths. The first is this, Jesus controls the forces of nature. Jesus controls the forces of nature. You know, the confession, Jesus is Lord, is the most ancient Christian confession of faith. But in our day, even as Christians speak and sing the words, Jesus is Lord, we might legitimately ask, Lord of what? For it's easy to repeat those familiar words, but what do we understand them to mean? In our day, there are many areas of life in which even Christians think Jesus is irrelevant. For example, we used to think that pastors who understood the Bible were indispensable counselors to people in trouble. Not anymore. Pastors are encouraged all the time from schooling on, don't get into that, send those problems to the experts, the psychologist and the psychiatrist. We used to think that when someone was sick 
that praying for them might make a difference. That's quaint. But now we know that really good medical attention is all that really matters. It used to be that in times of storm or drought, people called upon God to save them, to deliver them, to give them rain. Not anymore. We just consult the weather experts and hunker down for what we know no one can change. So sure, Jesus is Lord. It makes for great worship songs. But Lord of what? Lord of my religious feelings? Lord of our worship service? Or perhaps not really Lord of anything. Perhaps it's just an expression we use. God talk. Well, here in Luke 8, the Spirit of God working through Luke as he writes this gospel account addresses our weak faith head on. This passage is the beginning of a brief missions trip that Jesus takes, probably what we would call it anyway, during which we see an assortment of miraculous works that he does. He sets out across the Sea of Galilee and calms a raging storm. When he gets to the other side, to the region of the Gerizines, he uh, delivers a demon-possessed man, and then he returns home to a crowd and heals a woman who's had a 12-year hemorrhage on his way to raise Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. You see, our text today is the first of four miracles which demonstrate Jesus' lordship over four spheres of life, none of which is the religious sphere. Specifically, this first example makes a point that Jesus is Lord of. Jesus controls the forces of nature. On the most obvious level, this account is about Jesus calming a storm. Now, we might argue, well, it wasn't much of a storm. It's uh, just a little squall on a little lake, which they call the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't like a hurricane on the open ocean. But really, the size of the Sea of Galilee takes nothing from the account. This body of water was notorious for its storms. It's a shallow body of water that's 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by uh, hills, some of which rise to nine and 10,000 feet. So when the sweep, wind sweeps down the surrounding slopes, especially when cold wind comes one way and warm wind comes the other, the water is without warning kicked up into a a, a dangerous turbulence. Some of these disciples were fishermen. They had fished these waters every day of their lives for years. They knew this lake. They knew about its storms. They knew how to handle its storms. But they knew that they were in over their head. This storm put their lives in danger. For you know, it doesn't take a whole ocean to sink your boat and drown you. I know the closest I ever came to drowning was sailing on a little lake in Maine when a storm capsized our sailboat, leaving us dangerously exhausted, only to immediately be capsized again. You can drown in a little pond. But this account, it's not primarily about the size of the Lake of Galilee or about uh, the weather of the area. This is about the identity of the Lord Jesus. This whole event is providing the answer to the pointed question asked by the disciples in verse 25, 
Who is this who commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this? The Old Testament makes crystal clear who has such authority to command the winds and water and they obey them. There's this wonderful little vignette in Psalm 107. Let me read part of it. Some went out to the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril and courage, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to the desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord and his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. You see, Jesus doing exactly what the psalmist describes, Jesus reveals himself to be no less than the sovereign Lord, the divine Son. Jesus controls the forces of nature. And how does he exercise such control? What power does he bring to bear? A couple of weeks ago, as the Olympics were about to begin, the Chinese officials boasted that if the weather was not good for the opening ceremonies, they would change it. What they had in mind was seeding the clouds with silver iodide to make it rain earlier at a more convenient time. Though I noticed when it rained enough to cancel some of the competition, nobody seemed to be able to do anything. But Jesus didn't make those kind of claims, nor did he use any of those kinds of techniques. Jesus spoke, and by the power of his word, the uh, wind and the rain was rebuked, and the waves were calmed, the storm subsided. Jesus spoke with the same power by which God had spoken in the beginning, when he said, let there be light, and there was light. For Jesus is not a magician. Jesus is not a high-tech weather manipulator. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who controls the forces of nature. Well, this morning I would not disparage the study of second causes. It's good for us to do scientific inquiry. It's good for us to understand the weather. It's good for us to study the working of the human psyche. It's good for us to understand how the universe functions. But as we do so, we need to remember that even our ability to experiment and learn of the world around us is itself evidence that we are creatures made in the image of our Creator. He is God. We're not. He knows and providentially controls the things we can only study. He is the sovereign Lord of all. And Jesus, who is one with the Father, controls the forces of nature. It's a great truth of which we need to be reminded. But there's a second truth here, perhaps more personal truth, which we ought to learn from this text, and that's our second point. Jesus expects us to trust him in life's storms. Jesus expects us to trust him in life's storms. 
Fred Craddock, in his book on Luke, points out that this miracle is in a class by itself. Let me quote what he says. To say this episode is in a class by itself is to say that Jesus is with his disciples alone, away from the crowds or the critics, and Jesus ministers to them. It's rare in the Gospels for the disciples to be the beneficiaries of Jesus' power. Usually they are present as he ministers to others, or they join him in that ministry. And in the same way, the usual posture of the church is serving others in the name of Jesus. But the church is also the recipient of Christ's ministering presence. And that's what we see here. So that though this is an event which actually happened, it has almost a metaphorical sense. It's an object lesson as well, by which Jesus teaches his inner circle of disciples and thus teaches us his disciples. And the lesson is not just about Lord Jesus' lordship over nature. The lesson is about that Jesus expects us to trust him in life's storm. As we consider this for a moment, let me point out two things. First, that it's Jesus who puts us in the storms. Jesus puts us in the storm. You know, when trouble comes into our lives, our immediate response is to wonder, how can God let this happen? In fact, some of us concerned to protect God's honor will be careful to say God only let it happen. Well, there's an element of truth there. God's not out to destroy us. Satan is. God does not do evil. It's Satan that does evil. So when wicked things come our way, it is certainly driven. They are certainly driven by the evil one. But folks, Satan's not gone. He's not in control. Satan cannot do anything, cannot bring any trouble on God's people apart from God's enabling, his, his will. Remember the story of, Jacob, uh, of Job? Satan had to ask permission to afflict Job. And God put limits on him. You may do this much and not one bit more. So let's not sacrifice God's sovereignty here. In Isaiah 45, the Lord claims sovereignty even over life's storms. There we read, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Sure enough, that's what happened in our text. How did these disciples find themselves in this mess, this devastating storm? Well, according to verse 22, Jesus invited them. Let's go to the other side of the lake, he said. In fact, it was their obedience, not their disobedience, their obedience to him, which put them in the boat. So did Jesus not know about the approaching storm? Is the one who controls the forces of nature unable to predict what they will do? Such a view is absurd. But if Jesus knew about it, 
then we have to say, Jesus put them in the storm. Jesus put them in the storm. Why would God subject his own to the kinds of storms we see in people's lives? Well, the short answer is we don't understand completely. He is God, and we are not. In Isaiah 55, he says clearly, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But though we don't understand clearly, we do know that God's ways are not arbitrary or malicious. God does everything for his glory, and everything he does works for the salvation of his people. So though we don't understand everything, as we look through the scriptures and we see people in trouble, we can find bits and pieces of reasons why God put them in that storm of life. In Job's case, God was boasting about Job, demonstrating how righteous Job really was. It was a compliment to Job, not a destructive thing. In Joseph's case that we read about recently in Genesis, God was preparing the way to preserve his whole people through the trouble that's in Joseph down into Egypt. In Paul's case, when he complains about the thorn in his flesh that won't go away, God was keeping Paul's feet firmly on the ground because he had blessed Paul with such overwhelming, unbelievable, heavenly revelations. In the case of the Corinthian church, to whom Paul writes, God was giving them comfort in order to equip them to comfort the people they came in contact with. But in all these cases, in every storm of life, in the midst of the most terrible pain, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So this morning, whatever storm you may be facing, I remind you, God put you there. He's not trying to destroy you but to do you good. And that's sufficient reason for comfort and encouragement. So now he expects you to trust him in the midst of life's storms. Then there's a related observation here, a second observation, and that is that Jesus has not abandoned you. Perhaps the most difficult thing for the disciples facing this storm was that it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. As the wind picked up and they were manning the sails and things were getting out of hand and they couldn't quite control what was going on, Jesus was snoozing. And when the boat began to take on water and they're bailing out and wondering if it's going to stay afloat or if it's going to sink, Jesus is sound asleep. One can imagine they got pretty unhappy with their friend Jesus. And that's exactly how it seems, isn't it? When we face the various storms. Where's the Lord in this? I pray and I pray and he doesn't seem to be listening. Is he asleep? Why doesn't he do something? 
And before we know it, we've concluded that God let us down. He didn't keep his promises. He didn't answer our prayers. But folks, God has not abandoned you. Any more than he abandoned the twelve that night. He was teaching them to trust him. They weren't going to sink. Jesus was in the boat too. Well, you see, they were right when they cried out to him, Master, Master. But they were wrong to assume Master were going to be drowned. For Jesus does not abandon his own. This morning I tell you, God expects you to trust him in the midst of life's storms. It's not what comes naturally to us. I know that. It doesn't come naturally to me either. But God has surrounded us with his promises. We know that God has the power over all things. We know that he controls what storms we encounter and when we encounter them. We know that he has promised never to leave us or forsake us. We know that he works all things together for our good to bring us to glory. We know that when he is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We know that his ears are open to our cries and we know that he abides with us in the same boat. In 1927 in Aberdeen, Scotland, a man named Arthur John Gossip, the 50-year-old pastor of the Beech Grove Church, preached a sermon which he entitled, But When Life Tumbles In, What Then? This sermon is the only one we have from this little-known pastor, but it's regarded as one of the greatest sermons ever preached. It was his first sermon after the sudden, unexpected death of his wife. A sermon in which he struggles to reconcile his Christian faith with his loss. Here's part of what he says. I do not understand this life of ours. But still less can I comprehend how people in trouble and loss and bereavement can fling away peevishly from the Christian faith. In God's name, fling to what? Have we not lost enough without losing this too? In the depth of his sorrow, the worst storm he'd ever faced, A.J. Gossip understood that God expects us to trust him in the midst of life's storms. Most of us have done everything we can think of to do to avoid unexpected crises in life. And that's good. We should. It's responsible living. But before this week is over, some of us will face an unexpected storm. I don't know who. I don't know what. But it happens all the time. So this morning I want to prepare you for that moment of trial. Prepare you by leaving you these two great truths. 
First of all, Jesus controls the storms. He controls the forces of nature. He controls everything. And secondly, Jesus expects you to trust him in the midst of life's storms. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust that he will never leave or forsake you. Trust that he will give you strength to endure it or courage to die trying. Trust that he who gave himself for you on Calvary will give you everything you need for this pilgrimage to glory. For that is his promise. And he keeps his promises. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love it when things are calm and predictable and under our control. And we hate it when suddenly things happen that push us beyond our limits, <coughs> that disrupt our lives, that threaten us, things that we don't understand, things that we can't comprehend, things that make no sense to us, why we're in this, and what in purpose could be served. But we know, Lord, that that's how life is, and that's how you deal with us, and that it's in those terrible times that we grow the most or we fall away. So Lord, grant us grace to endure the storms, to take them from your fatherly hand, to trust you when we cannot see, when it looks impossible. And through it all, Lord, bring us to glory as you have promised to do. Amen.